patients at risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and today I'm joined by two very special guests to discuss the importance of transparency. One of the biggest challenges in healthcare today is a lack of transparency when it comes to training and licensure of healthcare professionals. As members of the healthcare team have taken an increasing role in providing medical care, patients may be treated by physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and other healthcare practitioners, and understanding who is who can be difficult. In fact, an AMA study found that only 55% of respondents thought that it was easy to identify who is a licensed physician. Moreover, 79% of respondents said that they would support legislation to require that patients be informed of the level of education, skills, and training of healthcare practitioners. Fortunately, some states are taking action to ensure truth and transparency among healthcare practitioners, and New Jersey is leading the way. Today, I am joined by Marlene Kalil Parampil, the Manager of Government Relations for the Medical Society of New Jersey. And I'm also joined by Dr. Flowers. He's a practicing physician in New Jersey as well. Welcome both of you to the show. Thank you for having us. Marlene, can we start out with you since you have been involved in the creation of this bill and in in advocacy for it? Tell us about New Jersey's new law, which took effect this July. The Truth in Advertising Law, it was a bill that we became involved here at the MSNJ back in November 2019 when MSNJ convened and led a specialty society meeting. This included all specialty societies within the state and their presidents and respective lobbyists were uh, invited to the table. We identified key issues that we all can align on. And the number one issue that everyone agreed on was limiting scope of practice expansion for non-physicians. And then right around the same time in December 2019, in New Jersey, there was an immunization bill, a measure in which MSNJ supported that would limit vaccine exemptions to only those persons with medical contraindications. And a member of the legislative leadership was approached by someone claiming vaccines are harmful to children and providing information to which they claimed was medically accurate. That legislator then asked for that person's name, and they said they're Dr. So-and-so. The legislator then asked, what type of doctor are you? And they said they're a chiropractor. So that made him completely outraged for, you know, a chiropractor giving information saying that's medically accurate. And that's what led us to quickly contact the AMA. We used their model legislation and tweaked it in accordance with New Jersey law here. And uh, he was actually one of our sponsors, the Senate president. (laughs) Wow, that is such a cool story. And it just goes to show how you guys having those relationships already in place. So when that happened, that legislator reached out and you were able to jump on it. What an amazing opportunity. Absolutely. And that's how we were able to get that bill introduced in February of 2020. And then the pandemic hit, but we kept pushing. And of course, with the pandemic in New Jersey, there was a waiver place where there was a lift on supervision for non-physicians. That made us very concerned. And of course, at the time, you, you know, it was all hands on deck. We needed every help we can to save our patients here in New Jersey. But we knew that that's going to probably, you know, hurt us in the end when things go back to normal and there will be folks who want to keep that permanent. So we quickly worked on it. And by December of 2020, the legislature passed it unanimously and it was signed by the governor and it took effect in July of 2021. Wow, that is amazing how quickly that actually went through, because usually these laws just seem to take forever. 
So just to kind of recap a little bit of what the law says, it's called the New Jersey Healthcare Transparency Act, and it requires that healthcare professionals clearly inform patients of their training and qualifications when they're providing in-person care to patients and when advertising their practice. Dr. Flowers, why do you think this law is important? Several reasons, and much of what you've spoken about, I'll expand on. Right now, the title doctor was usually reserved for physicians, for dentists, and for chiropractors, although people would generally know who they're seeing because it's for such different issues. Now, doctorates in healthcare seem to be replacing masters, nurse practitioners, physical therapists, occupational therapists, all great people in important roles, but they are now getting the title doctor. And using it very often in a way as if they were a physician, which is very confusing for patients. Even for other clinicians, it's it's confusing. And the thing to know, too, is the newer, particularly with the nurse practitioner doctor programs, the DNP, it's actually less clinical training and less experience required than the traditional NP. The traditional NP program, these are like nurses who've been practicing for many years and they have to apply to get in and it was a more rigorous process and they got more hands-on training, obviously nowhere near as much as a physician. But right now, so many of these are just online, have very limited clinical training and the doctorate comes from writing an essay, which as you can tell you, an essay, you learn about the one subject you write an essay on, not about you know, the millions of things you need to know for medicine. But these people are now using the term doctor in a way that deceives, it deceives people into thinking they're speaking with a physician because that's the logical assumption. This law will hopefully help clarify for patients who they're speaking with. And even if the term doctor isn't used, you're in a hospital room, eight zillion people come in in white coats, the dietitian, the phlebotomist, the nurse, the nursing assistant, everyone has a white coat. And patients don't don't know what questions to ask to know who they're actually getting the advice from. And I think it's important to know. I also don't think this is something that's derogatory towards the non-physician practitioners because it's just letting them express who they are. If a patient likes the dietitian, they'll have good thoughts about, oh, wow, I've learned a lot from this dietitian rather than, oh, that doctor was just talking to me about food and not about medicine. It's, you know, everyone has a role and we're not saying any of these roles don't belong there. We're saying patients need to know what the role is and what the training is for each person. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's really just about truth and transparency. And within the the text of the bill, they actually had some justification for it. And they stated that, of course, there are so many people using the term doctor. You mentioned doctor of nurse practice. And we know that 85% of all DNP or doctorate of nurse practice programs are non-clinical. In other words, they're not gaining extra clinical experience. So we know that there are more people using the term that aren't physicians. And they found also, as I alluded to that American Medical Association study, they cited that within the bill of the text saying that 27% of patients believe a chiropractor is a medical doctor, which they're not. 39% believe a doctor of nursing practice is a medical doctor, which they're not. 43% think a psychologist is a medical doctor. 47% think an optometrist is a medical doctor, and there are differences in what we do. So can you talk, Marlene, about some of the specifics of the bill? Tell us a little bit about what the identification requirements are. The bill has required all healthcare practitioners to 
wear either a badge or their embroidery on their white coat, uh, indicating what their name is. It could be first and last name. It can be a first initial and last name or a first name and last initial. And that was mostly in part due to the hospitals approaching us saying they have had a lot of, of their staff complain about patients reaching out to them on social media, harassing them and such. So we went ahead and worked with them on that measure. Also, within the badge, it would also in- include credential information as well as any board certifications. And at the bottom of the badge in the embroidered section of the lab coat, it should state clearly in large font, and this is again for the patient transparency part of it until they understand if you are an MD or DO, it'll say physician. If you are an APN or RN, it'll say nurse, chiropractor, pharmacist, anyone that may have a doctorate, for example, they would have exactly what their profession is indicated right at the bottom of their badge. So that for us was a major thing that we really wanted to make sure it was passed within this bill. And we were able to get everyone on board for agreeing to that as well. Yeah, I see why they thought that it was a good idea to allow first name only, but this is a sort of an issue that a lot of physicians have experienced where when they are labeled by their first name, somehow that seems to garner them a little bit less respect, especially for women physicians. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. Flowers? Yeah, I I definitely agree with you. I've had plenty of patients come in, usually older male for, you know, oh, hi, Sherry, how are you? And not, you know, not using my last name or my title. I think it's reasonable to be up to the practitioner, whether they want their last name used or not, as long as the actual information about their credentials is there. Personally, I like to use mine, but I can definitely see, particularly people who work with adolescents and younger adults, even kids who are more likely to use social media to find them. I think it's it can be very helpful for them. Yeah. Yeah, I was giving this some thought the other day because I was having kind of a lively discussion on social media with both men physicians and women physicians about the use of first names in clinical settings. Patients calling, you know, hey, Rebecca or, you know, Dr. Rebecca feels a little better to me than than just Rebecca. For a lot of women physicians, not all, but most of them felt like really it was very important that they be referred to as doctor. The men were a little less adamant about it, although there were a few that were. And then I was thinking about, from my perspective, one of the reasons that I like it is because I think about the patient goes home and they think about what I told them and they say, well, you know, Rebecca told me I should go on a diet or versus, you know, Dr. Bernard told me I should. There's just something a little more weighty, I think, about having Mm -hmm. that doctor, a little bit more authority and in the sense that I think it might help people even think about your advice in a different way. No, I agree with that. Uh, I definitely do. Maybe I'm off base, but it's an interesting discussion. Uh, So the first thing then is that all practitioners have to wear identification and they need to include very prominently what their title is, physician, nurse, respiratory therapist, whatever. Now, Marlene, tell us about the advertising rules. Sure. Regarding the advertising rules, the act would require that any advertisement for a healthcare professional licensed or certified to practice in New Jersey to include the type of licensure the professional was issued. Advertisements must exclude anything that's deceptive or misleading information relating to the healthcare professional, including any affirmative communication or representation that misstates, falsely describes, holds out, or falsely details the professional skills, training, expertise, education, public or private board certification or licensure. 
Now, have you seen you or Dr. Flowers, have you guys seen any evidence of false advertising that kind of indicates that a person is a physician when really they're not? I haven't seen it in advertising, but I have had plenty of patients tell me, oh, I saw Dr. So-and-so. And I'm like, oh, we know they're they're not a physician. These people usually, often these people don't even have doctorates. And I don't know if it's the patient just doing it out of a sense of respect that they're you know, they, they calling them doctors a respectful way to treat anyone providing healthcare, or if the non-physician practitioner is calling themselves doctor or trying to actually, you know, put smoke in front of the person's eyes and make them think that they are a physician. But I haven't seen a lot of ads advertising for physicians anyway. I guess I would say the places that I may have seen it would be on actually sites like health grades. Sometimes it'll say, for example, that a person attended medical school when they're a nurse practitioner. Sometimes Mm. I've seen a biggie will be psychiatric nurse practitioners listed as psychiatrists. I see that Mm. quite often. And that's upsetting because psychiatrists go to school for a long time to learn how to take care of mentally ill patients and they deserve their due. And so have you seen any other uh, evidence of that, Marlene? Yeah, I've actually heard more about nurse anesthetists calling themselves nurse anesthesiologists, <laughs> and that is completely inaccurate. And more recently, I actually came across the New Jersey Society of Optometric Physicians, and that was very alarming to me. I did some research to see if this is even accurate because there's no way. <laughs> but yeah, things like that I, I've come across. And there's been a few others that have been made made MSNJ aware of practices that are maybe physical therapy, but they're representing themselves as PMNR. And we Mm. have made sure that those were reported to our BME. Now, the third aspect, we've got the wearing a badge and identification. We have not being deceptive in advertising. And then the third is a signage requirement. And it's quite specific. It says that a poster or other signage with sufficiently sized font is to be placed in a clear and conspicuous manner in the office where the healthcare professional provides healthcare services to patients in an ambulatory setting. The poster must convey the type of licensure and professional degree held by the professional. So what are your thoughts about that, Dr. Flowers, about having signs in your practice? And has that changed your practice? No, we've had signs from the start. I think it's helpful, you know, patients, especially if a physician's not there that day. So they're going to get the covering clinician. They should know, you know, is the person covering have equal training to my physician or is it someone with less years of training? It's not to say that they can't see that person, but they should know who's providing the medical advice. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. And I think one of the big places that this is critically important are urgent care settings. We just had a podcast with Jeremy Wattenberger, whose seven-year-old passed away after a nurse practitioner did not make a correct diagnosis. And they thought she was a physician and she was working in an urgent care and there was no signage and no way for them to know otherwise. So it seems like that's a really important setting. Wow. Yeah. And the other story. It is. It's it's really a tragedy. And, the, you know, Mr. Wattenberger said, you know, if we had known it wasn't a physician looking as our daughter looked, we probably would have gone ahead and taken her to an ER. But we felt like, well, the doctor said she's going to be OK. So it's really um, the lack of transparency was a, a major factor in their decision making there. I think about there's a couple of specialists that aren't really their, their PAs that are practicing in my town and 
apparently their supervising physician is in a town that's you know three hour drive away and there's nowhere that you can even find that information. I only had to, it wasn't on any of the office notes. It wasn't anywhere on the billboard. So this is definitely happening in, in many areas, unfortunately. I see that in New Jersey too. The other thing that is an add-on to that is, as you mentioned, if a a non-physician practitioner is covering the office that day, or if they work in collaboration, that the physician supervising must have their hours posted in that office. And it says here that if a physician supervises or participates in a collaborative practice agreement, they must clearly and conspicuously post in the office the schedule of regular hours when the physician is present in the office. And I think that's really important. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. Flowers? No, I think that's a really important point that a lot of people wouldn't think of. You know, obviously things are going to change. Doctors' hours might change during certain weeks, so they might be away. But I, I do think it's a good point for them to know, is there actually a, a physician on site when I'm seeing somebody else if the physician needs to be called upon? Marlene, was there any pushback to that part of the law or any of these aspects were that you saw a little more challenges from different allied health professionals? Yeah, we actually expected to hear more from the nurse practitioners of being against this, but it made more sense for the patient to have that option and knowing when that physician's in and any other non-physicians that are in that practice and who will be taking care of them. So when they schedule next time, or even when they're there at that moment, um, they'll have an understanding of who is going to be there. And if that physician will be able to take care of them in case any adverse event were to happen under the watch of a non-physician. So it was a critical element. And it's one that, you know, no one can really oppose anyone that's a healthcare professional as it's meant for the patient. And it gives them that autonomy. Well, that's good to hear, especially as other states think about maybe instituting this same type of legislation. And as you mentioned, you use the AMA model legislation. So the verbiage and things like that is already there. It's just that we need to find a representative that would be willing to sponsor this kind of bill. Does that sound right? Absolutely. And anyone who would be interested in enacting a bill like such, reaching out to the AMA would be the best way to go about because they provided so much help because this particular bill has gone through several versions in the past, I want to say, 10 to 12 years. And it's been difficult to pass in many states, uh, including New Jersey. I think it was even attempted here in New Jersey many years ago. But with the new iteration of the bill, we were able to get all specialties, uh, healthcare providers to be on board because there was a lot of issues within our physician community. They were a little against, especially when it came to board certification. Well, yeah, let's talk about board certification because this is, uh, we just had a podcast with Paul Matthew, who's on the board of the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons, which is in a recertification body that's a competitor with the ABMS. And actually, I initially board certified with the ABMS and family medicine in 2002. I recertified in 2009. And then when maintenance of certification was introduced in 2015, and it was time for me to renew, I decided I didn't really want to go through the expense and the aggravation and the time. So I decided to let my ABMS lapse and I joined the NBPAS, but the state of Florida and now, and I guess based on this legislation here in New Jersey, people who are recertified through that board may not advertise as board certified. Is that how you understand the law? 
the act pretty much creates certain restrictions on advertising or holding oneself out as being certified by a public or private board of medicine. Advertisement of board certification is permitted if the board is a member of the ABMS or the AOA. A non-ABMS or non-AOA board must require certain prerequisites for certifications outlined in the act in order for such certified professionals to advertise the board certification. You know, I tried to find those, but I couldn't find them. I'd love to know because I completed a residency and I did uh, pass my exam on the first try and did fine on it. And I recertified again. And then I just decided I didn't want to keep doing all that. Uh, not that I mind the test, really. It's more the uh, the expense and then the the modules and also just kind of feeling a little bit bullied into it is how I felt. So uh, it would be nice to be able to identify myself that at least that I was initially board certified in some way. And I just don't know how to do that within the parameters of the way. I mean, Florida has a similar thing like this as well. I know that the NBPAS is wants to work with all the state boards of medicine to try to allow them as a, you know, a, they're calling it like a free market type option for physicians, not for initial certification. We all agree that everyone should have their initial certifications through the ABMS. It should be standardized, but as far as recertification. Do you have any thoughts on that, Dr. Flowers? I wasn't actually aware of the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons, but I do know I'm actually just coming up for my first recertification. But seeing my father, who's a physician, what he went through every time for the recertification, and he is very, he's always been very up to date with medicine. But studying for these exams doesn't really prepare you for what you're doing. It doesn't enhance your clinical knowledge very much. It, it's basically rogue learning. And so much of it is not relevant. And so much of it is like learning how to answer test questions again. Like you said, the expense is huge. For some of these tests, you have to travel to certain places. Some of them are done in not great testing environments where it's, it's hard to focus. There are loud noises. There are other things going on, other people walking through. So it really is. It's um, the certification process. They are working on changing to a more... Um, longitudinal plan where you yeah. can do certification, you can do maintenance of certification with learning throughout, which I think is a much better option. Um, and obviously you haven't had a chance to do that because it it has just started. But yeah, it's interesting. I didn't realize that there was another another board option. So yeah. So I since I'm direct primary care and I don't have any insurance credentialing or hospital credentialing, it really doesn't matter unless, mm. you know, except for maybe to patients if they really need wanted to have a board certified physician. So I can't say I'm board certified anymore. And it, it does kind of get a little bit under my skin only in the sense that a nurse practitioner can call themselves board certified for the rest of their entire career. They take a two hour or two to three hour, 200 question test one time, and then they can just certify their hours and that can be volunteer hours. And now they're always calling themselves board certified and I can't do that. (laughs) So I guess it's a little frustrating. So hopefully that's something that we'll see some changes made on that. Well, let's just get to one other question, which is that this law was passed in July. And have you seen any evidence of any changes being made? It sounds like, Marlene, you mentioned that you've been able to report a few people that are not following of the law. Uh, What other things have you seen? Well, we know the hospitals, majority of them are already complying with this law as it was already in place in a lot of facilities. But I know with the Medical Society of New Jersey, we have announced it to our members through our news and other um, meetings that we've had. So we've kept our members abreast. Uh, we have not seen any 
anything else, I did go and see a physician with my mother-in-law and she was not aware about the law going into effect. So, you know, we got to do a better job in understanding how to get this information to physicians in New Jersey, members and non-members of our medical society. So that's something we're working on. Yeah, I haven't heard a word about it. I actually messaged Marlene the other day to say, when is this starting again? It needs to just not be there on paper. It needs to be enforced. People need to be educated about it. People need to be prompted and be given a timeline. Like you must make these changes by this date. And they're doing that with requirements for COVID and healthcare, for vaccination and testing and healthcare. And they're doing a great job at getting that message out. They could use the same exact method to get this message out. And, um, and I think it's reasonable to give them, if they're not aware of it yet, to give them a time frame to get new signs and badges and everything, but it needs to happen. Are there any teeth to the law? Like, what are the consequences of not complying with this? I want to go back real quick because I believe the holdup in getting doctor's notifications uh, is also because the regulations have not come out by the Board of Medical Examiners. So we are still waiting those <laughs> guidance from them. We've been in touch along with other specialty societies, uh, have been reaching out and asking for an update and still crickets. They were supposed to have it done by February of this year and still uh, nothing has come out. They said they would have it ready by July 1st and nothing. And here we are. It's September 12th. Maybe that's where they'll come out with the certain prerequisites. Maybe that'll be part of that final information. Perhaps. <laughs> we'll see. Well, good. Well, any other final words that you guys would like to share as far as what our listeners out here can learn from what you guys did in New Jersey and help patients in their state have truth and transparency? I think the most important thing is, is speak up when you see something that's that's not right. Don't be afraid to reach out to your representatives. Everyone deserves to know the full truth and who's taking care of their health and then make an informed decision. And again, we're not saying everyone needs to see a physician for all their health care, but we're saying everyone needs to know who they're seeing. I would just mention uh, one of our former presidents at the Medical Society would always say when you're in medicine, you're in politics. It's very important for physicians to be aware of what is going on in their states and become very much active within their medical societies or specialty societies because there are other non-physician groups out there that have strong lobbying arms, right? And so they can get such legislation for themselves with scope expansion passed. uh, And if physicians just sit idly around, it's not going to help their cause at all. So I would say definitely, just like Dr. Flower said, definitely speak up. Yeah, we definitely encourage all physicians to get involved in the political process. I think just speak out when you see something that isn't right. Try to find other physicians that are like-minded and find out what's going on with them and how they're handling it. Reach out to your state medical society or your specialty society representatives, to your legislators. I mean, these are, if we don't do anything, then really we're just a part of the problem as well. Even though it's hard and it takes time and it takes energy, but you know, we have to stand up for what's right to make sure that our patients get the best care possible. And I want to thank both of you for what you've done for patient advocacy and for taking your time to come on our podcast and share this really important information with our listeners. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, I encourage you to get the book Patients at Risk, 
The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon and at Barnes and Noble. And we would love for you to subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel. It's called Patients at Risk. And if you're a physician and you'd like to learn more about getting involved with patient advocacy, join our group Physicians for Patient Protection. Our website is physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thank you so much. And we'll see you on the next podcast. Mm -hmm.